Believe in yourself, cause it starts with you, and then everyone else will believe you too. And if it looks like you're the only believer around, just keep on believing, don't put yourself down, just believe. Our guest this week grew up in Plymouth, Michigan. For 30 years, he was the president of Distinctive Maintenance, which was an office cleaning company consisting of 600-plus employees with sales over $12 million a year. Since 1995, he's been an author, speaker, film producer, and a world-renowned leader of pilgrimages to the biblical lands. The author of several books and nine documentaries, his name, Steve Ray. And I'm Jack Rasula. And this is Anything is Possible on 760-WJR. I'm Jack Rasula. This is Anything is Possible. And since 1995, Steve Ray has been an author, speaker, film producer, and a world-renowned leader of pilgrimages to the biblical land. Steve, welcome. An honor to have you. Well, thank you, Jack. It's an honor to be here. This is my first time, and uh, I'm glad to join you today. Can you start this evening by leading us in an opening prayer, please? Well, I certainly will. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the, the blessings that you've given us in our lives and for the great technology to be able to talk to so many people all at one time. We pray uh, that you will bless our conversation, that you will bless the listeners, and that uh, all of us will be better servants of the kingdom because of it. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Can we start by talking about your childhood, growing up in Plymouth, Michigan, and your mom and your dad, please? Yeah, I was born in Detroit in uh, 1954. My mom and dad decided to move out to the country. They wanted us boys to have a... um, a life out in the country. My dad bought three acres out at what's Canton today, and it was Plymouth back then, but it's divided into Canton. And then he built a little three-acre farm out there. He built the house himself. And uh, so since 1961, we lived out there on that wonderful three-acre piece of land surrounded by woods. And uh, my dad was a very unique guy. He worked at Ford Motor Company, and uh, he always had the same job. Never got promoted, and when I got a little older, I said, Dad, why did you never get promoted at Ford Motor Company? I said, you were a good worker. You were a wonderful employee. Henry Ford II personally hired my dad. And so he told me when I was older, he said, Steve, well, they always offered me promotions, but I always asked them the same question. Do, will this promotion require me to work you know, weekends and evenings. And they said, of course, Charlie, it comes with the extra responsibility, the money. And he said, well, I'm sorry, I have to turn you down. I cannot take your promotion because I have three boys at home that need me more than Henry Ford does. Hmm. This is a big sacrifice. We never, I never knew what a stake was until I got older and married. We never went on vacation except drove up to the Upper Peninsula or something like that. But we had dad home with us. And he would not get us a television. <laughs> Quite also another unique thing about my dad. He said, no, he says, we, we're not going to have a television. He said, in our family, we're going to read stories together. So every evening when mom was cleaning up the kitchen, dad would sit on the couch with us boys climbing all over my three, two younger brothers. And he would read us stories about heroes and about 
saints and about dragons and all of these wonderful adventures, and he formed our character that way, taught us to think, to have an insatiable curiosity. And Saturdays were for us boys. He bought us a pony, and he bought us a pool, and we just had a wonderful time all day Saturday walking in the woods and taking care of the little animal, the little farm we had, playing baseball, and then Sundays were for the Lord. So this is this is the way I was raised, and um, anything that's good about me today, I thank the Lord for it, but I really give my mom and dad credit for moving us out to the country, giving us this wonderful lifestyle, and giving themselves to us, and it, it paid off in the long run. Let's go back to March 1985. You're out of high school, and you buy a $5 vacuum cleaner, and you start Distinctive Maintenance. Yeah, we'll back up even a little further. That was in, I graduated from Plymouth High School in 1973. I met a beautiful young lady there uh, my last year, and um, she had just moved from California. And, and my uh, my she tells me to this day that God spoke to her the first time she met me. She was 15, I was 17, and she said, that's the man you're going to marry someday. Four years later, we got married. So I graduated in 73. We were married about four years later, and I I started Distinctive Maintenance in 1975. I still had my first invoices and homemade business cards that I made. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any money. She trusted me back in those days. She said, you're going to be somebody, and I'm trusting you, and she married me. And we started out of the dining room. I made homemade business cards in 1975. And I bought a vacuum cleaner at a garage sale for $25, a mop bucket and a ringer. And I started with my little station wagon with all this equipment in the back, going door to door at little businesses and said, I'll clean your building for you. And they said, okay. They gave me a key. They said, send us an invoice at the end of the month. So my first job I got was a one-hour martinizing and right in Canton, Michigan. I see that little place every time, and it's where I got my beginnings. And um, so we started that, and uh, I built on a little bit here, a little bit there. Then I realized that I could only do so much work myself. I was working all night, every night, cleaning all these buildings. And I went to a convention. It was a, a contract cleaner's convention. And these guys who are these uh, veterans who had been in the business a long time, they took me under their wing and they said, Steve, if you're going to grow your business and get to the point where you have any independence and money, to uh, two nickels to rub together, you're going to need to grow. And that means you need to hire people and you need to step back from cleaning and be the manager. And eventually then you'll be the salesman and the CEO. Well, that's what I did. I came back from those conferences and I started hiring a few people to help me. And then I stood back and I had them do the cleaning. I started doing the sales and customer relations. And before you know it, over a period of years, we built it up to $12 million a year in sales and 600 plus employees. We had a a union division, a non-union division, and a minority division. So we, it was growing 30% a year until I ended up selling it. We're talking to Steve Ray. When we come back, we're going to ask him about where he and Janet got their phenomenally strong faith. And I'm Jack Rasool, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Welcome back to Anything is Possible. I'm Jack Rasool, with Steve Ray. If you want to learn more, www.catholicconvert.com. Steve, you and Janet had a very, very strong faith. 
you were actually anti-Catholic zealots. In, in a way, you were modern-day Saul of Tarsus. Um, where did you get this strong faith from, and why were you so anti-Catholic? Well, my father and mother, in 1954, Billy Graham came to Detroit, and my mom tells me the story. She, she died last year on Mother's Day at 100 years old. Wow. My mom and dad had been married 73 years. Mm. And they were very influenced. They had been raised with no religion and heard Billy Graham on the radio. My mom always told me the story how she fell on her knees and said, Dear God, I've never heard anything like this before, <clears throat> what this man is saying, Billy Graham, but I want to be saved like he's talking about. And my mom and dad both became Christians in 1954, 53 actually, and they started going to a little Baptist church called Joy Road Baptist Church in Detroit, Michigan. It doesn't exist anymore. And they learned right away from this pastor that they were going to go to heaven if they believed in Jesus, but they were also learned right away that the Catholic Church was a counterfeit Christianity. They used the same book, and they used some of the same language, but actually Catholicism was the exact counterfeit of true Christianity, because Catholics trusted tradition. Real Christians, the Baptists, they had the Bible— Catholics thought they got to heaven by doing good works. Baptists said we get there by faith alone. And we pray, Catholics pray to dead saints, and we Baptists, we pray to the living God in heaven. So they, they learned every lie that you could learn about the Catholic Church, every misconception that you could learn. They were taught that in their early Christian years. Well, I was born a year after they became uh, Baptists, and they became Christians in the Baptist tradition which they remained in their whole life, and which is the way I was raised. And I have to say, Jack, I have no animosity, no anger towards the way I was raised as a Baptist, because I learned what it meant to be holy, because my mom and dad really took to the faith, uh, the Baptist faith in the Bible, with gusto. And I learned how to be a good husband. I learned how to be a good father. I learned to love the Bible. I learned to love Jesus from that tradition that I was raised in. But that tradition also taught that pretty much we were the ones going to heaven, and that Catholics and others, uh, they were off enough so that they were going to miss out because they had a different gospel than what we had learned. So this is the way I grew up until I was 15 years old, and then I got very rebellious. And uh, that was back in the late 60s, early 70s, and pretty much everybody knows what happened back in those days. And for two years, I caused my parents a lot of grief. But then um, at 17, I, I heard Billy Graham on the radio. My mom and dad had it on WJR, by the way. And um, then there was also WMUZ, which was the Christian station, the Protestant station. And I think it, he was on that station, and I heard him at 17 years old. I had long, hippie hair, bell-bottom blue jeans. I was a rebel, you know. And when I heard Billy Graham, I got tears in my eyes. The Holy Spirit just, oof, I just, something happened inside of me, Jack. And I went, I, we lived on Napier Road in Canton, Michigan. And I went out there with my long hair and blue jeans at night, and I looked up to the heavens, and I said, Jesus, I'm only 17 years old, but tonight I'm going to give my whole life to you. And I did. I gave my whole life to him, and that set the trajectory for the rest of my life. Now, I've lived it better some days than others, but I have never set that trajectory, that course, aside 
And from that day on, when I was 17 years old, Jesus Christ was going to be and always has been numero uno for me. And then I met my wife when she was 15, and I found a girl who had just come from California. Her dad also worked at Ford Motor Company. I got a job in Detroit area, and she was just as passionate. She had just found Jesus, too. That's the way we would have said it then. We found Jesus. You found Jesus, too. This is great. And we ended up getting married. So the, um, the whole idea that we had was that Catholics were not really Christian. They were not really saved. Now, not all Protestants believe that. Not all evangelicals do, but my brand, my tradition that I was raised in this very fundamentalist Baptist view was very strong on this issue, and we would, uh, it was our job to get Catholics saved, so to speak, get them out of the Catholic Church. That's, that's a bad place to be. They're being taught the wrong things. Uh, they think they get saved by all of these rituals instead of by having a personal relationship with Jesus, so we got to get them out of there and get them saved so that they can get to heaven. And that's the way I was raised, and pretty much uh, until I was uh, 39 years old. I used to teach—I was never a pastor. I had my own business, of course, but we homeschooled our kids, and we raised all all four of our kids. We homeschooled them all the way through high school. Reason being, of course, my wife said, you know, one out of five kids are graduating. They can't read. I'm going to guarantee my kids will be able to read. And second of all, she said— I'm not going to give them away to somebody else for the best eight hours of their day. I'm going to have them for the best hours of the day, and they're going to know they were created in the image of God, and they have infinite value as creation made in the image of God, and they didn't crawl out of the muck somewhere like the evolutionists say. So that's why we homeschooled our kids, and and up until I was 39 years old, I taught the Bible in a lot of different churches. We did evangelism. And I lived a very, I would say, exciting and very fulfilled evangelical Protestant lifestyle. We're talking to Steve Ray in 1994. He and Janet converted to Catholicism. And they wrote a book about the conversion story, Crossing the Tiber. Evangelical Protestants discover the historic church. Then in 2007, Steve, you sell distinctive maintenance because you wanted to pursue your first love Catholic apologetics with all your time and energy. Let's go back to the first century. Paint for us a picture of the uphill battle that those first Christians faced and survived. Yeah, it was a rough time. And and I have to say, Jack, I think that we're moving into a new period where Christians are going to be persecuted again. It's already beginning, I think, in our secular culture that's going very anti-Christian and um, promoting a much uh, very secular materialistic view. But the early Christians, they came out of the chutes, so to speak, with Jesus raising from the dead, and 3,000 were added on the day of Pentecost, and then more and more. They really never knew the club was going to get this big, but the club kept getting bigger and bigger, and people kept coming into the church. And there wasn't a whole bunch of different denominations. There was, of course, only one. It was called Catholic and that was from the first century. We see that word the first time used, but it was used in uh, 106 in a writing, but it was not an innovation. It was a word that was already well established as a name of Jesus's group that he started the church. It was Catholic, meaning universal, for all the truth, for all the people, for all time, is what that means. And when they came out, though, they they rejected the Roman gods. 
They didn't follow Zeus and Aphrodite and Apollo and Artemis. They said, no, there's only one God and his, and, and his son, Jesus Christ, who is his equal. He, they're both God, and his son became God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and he dwelt among us. And for that reason, they were persecuted. And when Paul and Peter came to Rome, there was this clash because Julius Caesar had just been declared divine. Men had now achieved divinity. Men could become gods. The Roman empires were considered to be gods, the Lord, even called the Prince of Peace. So men had supposedly come to the point where they could become gods. And then Peter and Paul come from this faraway land with a different funny accent, and they said, no, you've got it wrong. Men don't become gods. God actually became a man. And his name was Jesus Christ. And they preached something different. And because of this, they were persecuted. And they were they suffered for 300 years, um, not always equally rigorous tortures and martyrdoms, but throughout the Roman Empire, they did. Peter was crucified. Paul was beheaded. And the whole feast days in the Catholic Church began with the remembering of the martyrs and bringing them their bones forward and saying, on this day we remember Ignatius of Antioch, on this day we remember Justin Martyr and what they suffered for the faith. And so there's, it's pretty much understood that the first 30 popes, when they took the chair of Peter, and that's what it was called, the chair of Peter, which, by the way, was followed up this chair of Moses. And in the Old Testament, there was a chair of Moses, which represented the authority. Now it's the chair of Peter in the church, the new Israel, which represents the authority. And every one of those popes in the first three centuries, when they accepted that office, they knew that they were painting a bullseye on their chest. They knew that they were becoming the head of the snake, so to speak. They were becoming the head of this new organization. And Rome would target there's an old saying that if you want to kill a snake, you don't cut his tail off, you cut his head off. So they would, the Romans would go after the head. And so many of these, the, the early, the popes, they died as martyrs. And many of those outspoken Christians did as well. Until 313, Constantine uh, legalized Christianity and made it a legal religion. And then once it became legal, it had already spread across the empire. The interesting thing was is that even though Christians were being persecuted for it, they still continued to grow. Like Tertullian, one of the early writers, said, for every drop of blood that you shed of ours, it's seed. It's the seed of the church, because every drop of blood that you shed of ours, ten more will grow from that seed you planted, which seems counter counterintuitive. You think that people are dying to join this club, so to speak, and, and yet it keeps growing and growing. And then when it became legalized, my goodness, then it just it really spread, and then it ended up shortly after becoming the religion of the empire. So these early Christians, had they not been willing to suffer the way they did, Christianity may not have existed. They were the hinge figures that brought it through that period of time so that it became established, and then it grew. And look at us now, we're over a billion strong. We're talking to Steve Ray. If you want to learn more, www.catholicconvert.com. When we come back, we're going to ask him the role that Christianity has played in the world for 1,700 years. And I'm Jack Rasool, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR.
This is Anything is Possible. I'm host Jack Priscilla. We're with Steve Ray. His latest book is coming out this fall entitled Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Steve, talk about the role that Christianity played from about 300 until 1950 or so. A lot of people today think that Christianity and Catholicism in particular is anti-scientific, anti-women, and anti-development and progress, which is exactly, it's exactly the contrary to that view. Christianity has always been the innovator in many of these areas, like, for example, science. Because Christianity said there's a rational God who created a universe that's rational. Two plus two is always four. Today it is, and tomorrow it is too. So he made us in his image to be rational creatures. Science began by rational creatures being able to think God's thoughts after him. In other words, God made a rational universe. We, as his, made in his image, can study and understand it. And as we understand the world, which we call science, we're understanding what God did and what God made. So that's the beginning of modern science. That's how it began. It's not a theory. That's a fact. Also, for example, the freedom and equality of women. This is in the Roman times and in all the ancient times, women were always subservient. They were owned by their husbands or fathers. They were almost property in a sense in many cultures. And in Rome, it was no different. And Paul for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he drops an atomic bomb on the Roman Empire, on the Roman culture and the whole pagan culture of the time, because men were the masters and women were subservient. They were there just to have babies and cook the food. And so Paul writes, and he says to the Christians, he says that a woman should not withhold herself from her marital obligations to her husband because her husband owns her body. Well, that's nothing new. The Romans would all cheer for that. Yes, of course, we know that. But then here comes the atomic bomb. Paul says, and men, do not withhold yourself from your wife and your marital duties to her because she owns your body. This was totally radical thing to say. Now, that took time for that seed to grow. But in the Christian world, as Christianity began to expand and became the culture of the land, and that's what you said from 300 to 1700, pretty much in the Western world, Christianity became the philosophy, the religion of that world. You look at Europe and you look at the Middle East, it was all Christian at one time. Now, before Muhammad came in the 600s, those areas were all Christian areas, even Saudi Arabia. And you had Christianity just expanding and flowering all through Europe and eventually even to the Western world. And it brought these beautiful things that Christianity brought. You have the most beautiful music from people like Bach and Beethoven and Mozart, all from a Christian worldview, a Christian philosophy and perspective. Science and medicine came because we were told in Scripture and in the Church that we were to care for the poor, we were to heal them. So what do we do? We develop medicine to help and is still to this day the only source of health care in at least a quarter of the world. If you need health care, you go to the Catholic services. So Christianity brought all of these beautiful things into the world, the beautiful music, the science, the equality of people, because we said 
each individual is made. Oh, and also the value of the human being, because we are taught, the early Christians are taught, that all of us are made in the image of God. And if we're made in his image, each individual person, from the moment of conception until natural death, that individual person has inestimable value. How do you value a life a person made in the image of God who will live through all of eternity. They are now eternal creatures to live forever. So this is what Christianity gave to the world. And because of that, we see the whole Western world uh, blossom with art and music and medicine and education. And now there's been in the last hundred years or so a move back, I think, away from Christianity, not because a better idea has come about or a more effective philosophy. But I think it has a lot to do with uh, people don't want to be subject to a god. They would rather be autonomous, man as the center of all things. And we're moving away from that whole idea of God creating and we being made in his image. And when we lose that, human beings lose that unique value that the church has always said we've had. And we become util- utilitarian, and we can then eliminate human life. Mean, look at abortion and all the things that are happening at that end, right up to the moment of birth even. And it's starting to happen at the end of the li- end life spectrum, too, with older people. They're, gonna, they're not any more productive for society. So once you lose the dignity of the human person, you start losing what we have gained through Christianity for those 1,700 years. We're talking to Steve Ray. He's an author and a speaker. And one of his speeches is swimming upstream, living a Catholic life in a pagan world. What do, what do you try to get across in that speech, Steve? Well, I, I see we're losing, we're losing our Christian culture. And some people say, bravo, bravo, let's get rid of it. But I don't see that as a good thing because, like I, we closed out the last segment, that Christianity has always taught judeo Actually, Judeo-Christianity has always taught that the human person has infinite value because we've been made in the image of God. When you lose that, you start to lose the value. So I think that what, one of the things that we need to do is continue to restore that, to fight back, and to keep our emphasis on the fact that there is a God and that God created us in His value because the alternative is a very horrendous alternative. Talk to us, if you will, about social media and the power it's playing today. Wow, it's, it's, um, I, I think it's a disaster for kids. Uh, let me just start with that. I, I'm very grateful that we didn't have social media when I was a kid. I was carrying around a, a gadget in my pocket and making friends over Facebook, virtual friends, instead of having real friends. Us boys are out there fighting and wrestling and swimming and playing baseball and having real interactions with people and falling in love with a girl and all Yeah, in real time, in real life. And today, so much of the kids are are now um, absorbed into a little gadget in their hand and not having the kind of interaction that we're really supposed to have. Social media is a powerful, both for good and for evil. It's just, I would say, Jack, it's like a hammer. Is a hammer good or bad? Well, if you use a hammer to crush someone's skull, it's a bad thing. If you use a hammer to build a house, it's a good thing. Social technology is the same. It can be used for good, for spreading around good news uh, like we're doing right now. 
talking to people about what really matters most in life, and we can use it to help people medically and scientifically and all these other ways, communication, but it can also be used in a very bad way. And I think we're seeing the effect of that on young people today with the suicide rates and the loneliness and the isolation that many of them are experiencing and the bullying, too, even that it goes on in social media. But uh, so it can be used for good or evil. I use social media all the time, but I use it to promote what's good and healthy and real relationships. But it's also when you look at the pornography and the other kind of um, very evil things that are out on social media, you can see that it, it's a double-edged sword. One side is very, very good, and the other side can be very, very damaging. I have to say that I'm really proud of my kids because I have four children and 20 grandchildren, and those grandchildren have been raised without gadgets. They don't have iPhones in their hands. They read books together. They said, I even offered to buy one of my grandsons an iPhone when he was going uh, on a trip one time, and he says, no, Papa, I don't want one of those. He said, Mom and Dad, we've talked about it, and I, I'm going to wait until I'm 18 before I get that. He says, because I would rather just interact with real people and real times and read books. And those grandkids sit around reading stories to each other, the older ones to the younger ones. Very unusual it is, but I love what my kids are doing with our grandkids. We're talking to Steve Ray. He's produced nine documentaries with Ignatius Press in 16 countries. If you want to learn more, www.catholicconvert.com. And I'm Jack Rasula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Jack Rasula, host of WJR's Anything is Possible, the weekly radio visit brings his 15 years of inspirational storytelling to hardcover. With God, anything is possible. Anything is possible. 15 of Jack's more than 750 tales of defeating odds and achieving the extraordinary. Like Bob Woodruff, whose job covering the war in Iraq nearly cost him his life. And Nick Vujicic, the limbless evangelist who has stunned millions with his message of acceptance and grace. With God, anything is possible. Order now while signed copies are still available at trustinusllc.square.site. That's trustinusllc.square.site. And as Jack says, Make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spohol. I'm Jack Rasula. This is Anything is Possible. We're talking to Steve Ray since 1995. He's been author, speaker, film producer, and a world leader in pilgrimages to the biblical lands. You and Janet, in 2005, started taking people to the biblical lands. You've yes. taken tens of thousands. Steve, if you could go to one spot, one site in the Holy Land, where would you go and why? <laughs> That's a tough question, but it really is. Um, there's one place. I, I'm actually going to say two. Nazareth and Jerusalem at the tomb of the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Let me start with Nazareth first, because it was there 
that a young 15-year-old girl that most historians believe she was around 15 named Miriam. We call her Mary today. And she was there living in a cave in Nazareth. And an angel came and said to her, you're going to have a son. And it's going to be a virgin birth. And you're going to have a son. And he's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. Mary said, okay. And that's where it all began. Without Nazareth, there would never be Bethlehem. Without Nazareth, there would never be Jerusalem, because that is where God became man. When those cells began to replicate in Mary's womb, those cells were 100% human and 100% divine. God had become man. That happened in Nazareth, the incarnation. And from that, all of the rest came about. So that's my that's one uh, one of two favorite places. The second one would be at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, because under one roof, you have Calvary, where Jesus shed his blood for our sins, where he died to bring salvation to the world. And uh, less than 100 feet away, about you walk 100 steps from there, you come to the tomb where he was buried. And it doesn't look at all like it did back in the first century, because it was in a garden and it was on a hillside. But Queen Helen, in the early 300s, built a huge basilica over that place. And from that point on, millions and millions of people have come there to venerate and to remember where Jesus was crucified and where he was buried and rose again under the same roof. So those are the two favorite places that I would I would take people to if I could only take them to two. We're talking to Steve Ray. He and Janet have taken tens of thousands. And you're going in September, twice in September, November, December, January, February, April, Um to the biblical lands. If you want to learn more, www.catholicconvert.com. It'll be some of the best money you ever spent. Steve, young listeners tonight. Mr. Ray, I just don't believe what the church teaches today, and if I think it's okay, it's okay. Who are you to judge me, and who am I to judge anybody else? I would have to say that there is such a thing as truth. Our generation today, and unfortunately most of the people are growing up today, to, that there is no such thing as truth. Truth is whatever you want it to be, whatever you decide to be, and yet we can't live that way in the real world. Nobody walks through a, a wall. They all go through a door, and that's because the door opens and lets us out. There is a true reality. Two plus two is four. Some things are good and some things are bad. And some things are harmful. If we start out life thinking that we can do whatever we want and that our, we can create our own truth and our own reality, it's going to be a rude awakening for young people. What you need to do is look back over history. What is the philosophy that has brought beauty to the world? What philosophy, what worldview has there been that has brought dignity to people, beautiful music, medicine, art, the things that you look back in history? What happens, Jack, is that young people today don't know their history. And there's a saying, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. What we need to do is teach our young people today that there is such a thing as truth and then set them on a search to find out what that objective truth is. I spent 68 years of my life doing that, and I've concluded that the truth, ultimate truth, is found in the Catholic Church and in the view that there is a God who created us in his image, and he cares about us today, and he wants us to be part of his family. I listen to a lot of fallen-away Catholics, Steve, who tell me, Jack, I just don't believe that the Eucharist is truly the body and blood of Christ. I 
can understand why they say that, because when they go up and they take the Eucharist, it tastes like bread and it tastes like wine. But the reality is, is that for all of history, up until just recently, and where the Protestants came along, even many of them believed that there was something that there was really happening there at the Eucharist. There was only a small sliver of the pie that denied it. All of Christianity for the first 1,500 years, and most Christians since that time, have always believed that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, and it's a special way. You are what you eat, and when you eat Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, you become like him. It says in the uh, Peter tells us in the Bible that we become partakers of the divine nature. We're actually made, brought into the very life of the Trinity. And this great gift of God that he gave us, Jesus said, this is my body. He didn't say this represents my body, or you can think it. He says, this is my body. And he also said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's a very radical statement. And today, most people walk away from it. And guess what? When he said it, most people walked away from it, too. But all of Christianity, for the first 1,500 years, they were willing and ready to die for that truth. And I am, too. We've been honored to have Steve Ray. Steve, you are a person of courage. You and Janet, your team, keep up the great, great work, please. Well, thank you, Jack, and thanks for having me on today. It was delightful sharing these things with you and uh, being on the great WJR, which I've known ever since I was a little boy. Please join us next Saturday. Until then, I'm Jack Krasula. Thanks for listening, and make it a great week, because with God, anything is possible. Spall.